a young business owner was opening a brand new branch office, and a friend of his wanted to help him celebrate, and so he sent him a floral arrangement to be displayed there in the new office uh, on the grand opening. Uh, he wasn't able to be there early in the day, but toward the end of the workday, he was able to break away, go visit his friend in his uh, new location, and uh, he was horrified when he walked in the door and saw that this uh, floral arrangement that he had ordered said on it in big, bold letters, rest in peace. Well, he was just livid, and he immediately stormed out of there and went to the florist office just down the street and said, what do you think you're doing? I ordered this as a celebration for my friend, and you completely messed it up. It sent absolutely the wrong message. And the, the florist just apologized all over himself, and he said, I, I'm so sorry, but try to Try to look at the bright side. Somewhere out there today, a man was buried under an arrangement that said, good luck in your new location. <laughs> we're starting a new sermon series today, called, or we're continuing rather, uh, a series called You Ask For It. And these messages come from your questions. Uh, today's message is going to be similar in tone to the video you just saw. Uh, lots of Bible, uh, comparing a lot of different passages, so buckle up. We're going to cover a lot of content today. Today's question is, what happens when you die? It's kind of a hybrid question, really. Uh, we had several questions um, that pertained a, a piece of this uh, discussion. Uh, Carol Creedon and Martha May and Becky Crafton all kind of ask questions that, that pertain to heaven and hell and death and eternity and resurrection and all those things. And so we just kind of, I kind of combined them all into one uh, concept here of what happens when we die. Now this is an important question to answer because statisticians tell us that 100% of us <laughs> will go through this. Uh, b barring the two guys in the Old Testament who did not, you know, Enoch and Elijah, and those who have the privilege to see the second coming of Jesus with human eyes, every one of the rest of us are going to die. This has been the question that humanity has struggled to, under, to answer and understand since the beginning of time. And really, ultimately, all of human philosophy and all of human religion seeks to answer this question. What happens when we die? Some folks say that death is the end of existence. That when your life ends, uh, your family and friends put you in the ground and you cease to exist. I don't know about you, but I have noticed that everyone who says that hasn't died yet. So at, their, their opinion is, at best, an uninformed opinion. I would rather hear from someone who's been through that experience and come back. His name is Jesus. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus makes it pretty clear to me that Abraham, at least in his mind, is still alive. Even though Genesis 25, 8 says that Abraham died and was gathered to his people a reference to some kind of life after death. In fact, over and over again, the Bible affirms that this life is not the end of our existence, that there is some existence for us even after we die. 
We're going to talk about that today. I'm really glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us for the very first time, maybe you came for Easter last Sunday and you've come back again today, thank you uh, for being here. I would love to meet you when we're all done. I'll be right down front. So if you're new today or if you've just started coming to Chapel Rock, please come down and say hi. I just want to welcome you and, and greet you personally. Uh, if you're joining us online, thank you so much for logging in from wherever you are. Uh, we're glad to have you join us that way. If, uh, if you're local, we'd love to have you come visit us on site. And then at the conclusion of the message today, a short video will play that, that we think will help you take your next step with Jesus. We're, we're really glad that you're here. We're going to continue this sermon series today. Um, and we're asking the question, what happens when you die? We're going to be talking about a lot of different Bible passages today. Uh, so you note takers uh, will definitely want to, to stay on top of that. Uh, and we're going to look at some texts that deal with pretty weighty issues. Uh, at one point, this sermon is going to feel very heavy. I just, I'm, you know, consider this fair warning, okay? Um, it'll get better, though. But I, I don't want us to, lose, to get lost in all the details, all right? And so I feel like we need a roadmap to kind of guide us on this discussion. It's today's big idea. Here it is. Knowing what will happen when you die is important. Knowing the one who determines it is essential. Knowing what will happen is important. But knowing the one who determines what will happen is essential. See, Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh, who died on the cross in our place for our sins, and that he rose again on the third day to recreate us in this life and give us the hope of eternal life after we die. So how's that happen? Well, let's kind of create a roadmap of what happens when we die. Let's talk about knowing what happens. Um, simply put, when you die, your body and your soul will separate. The, what, what makes up a human being is both physical and material and non-material. Physical and spiritual. <laughs> and when you die, those things separate. Your body remains here and your soul goes Somewhere. The, your soul is the non-physical part of you. You can call it the mind, you can call it the will, you can call it the spirit. Maybe it's all those things combined. <laughs> but the non-physical part of you goes somewhere. And where it goes depends on whether or not you're saved or lost. Whether or not you're in a covenant relationship with God or not. I heard a story about a little girl who was outside her Sunday school class. And she was holding a big storybook that said, Jonah and the Big Fish. And the preacher was walking by, and he saw her and just wanted to have a little fun with her. And he said, do you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish? Oh, yes, I do, Mr. Preacher. You really believe that a man could be swallowed by a, a, a fish and be in there for three days and come out and be okay? Yes, I do. So how do you know that? Well, it's in the Bible, and everything in the Bible is true. He said, well, well, how do you know that it's true? She thought for a second, and she said, well, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. <laughs> the preacher was just, by this point, he's just being ornery. He said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And she put her hands on her hips. She said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Hate it when kids are smarter than the preacher. Um, <laughs> so let's kind of map out the afterlife here, all of this happens within the context of eternity. God existed before there was space and time. God's existence is eternal. I love the way one ancient creed put it, there was never a time that God was not. He's always been. 
And for our limited, finite human brains, sometimes it's hard to get our head around. <laughs> but all of this happens within the broader context of eternity. God existed eternally before he created the angels. Even Satan is a created being. And after the final redemption of creation is complete, life will carry on eternity. The, eternity is the context for all of this to happen. And that's how it begins. And then we get bad news pretty quick. And I don't know about you, but when someone says you want the good news or the bad news, I always pick the bad news first because I'd, I'd rather end on something positive. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to talk about hell. We don't talk much about that anymore. I think we've kind of ceded that ground to Hollywood, and I'm not sure they're right. There are three words in the New Testament translated hell in our English Bible. We're going to look at those this morning. The first one came into existence after Satan and the angels who followed him rebelled against God. We call that the fall. And so, you know, within the context of eternity, at some point, uh, you get Satan's fall, uh, from his place of glory and honor as one of God's archangels uh, to, to a rebellion based on pride. He thought he could, according to Isaiah, set himself up in God's place. <laughs> he was wrong, and he fell. We don't know exactly when this happened. I'm, I'm assuming it happened well and truly before Genesis 3 when he tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. It may have even happened before the creation of the world. It's hard to know for sure. The Bible just doesn't say. It just doesn't speak to that. But at some point, uh, Satan and his angels fell. And when that happened, God, uh, I think, created and imprisoned them in a place that, that the Bible calls Tartarus. Now, it's translated hell in your Bible. But the word that's used there is Tartarus. Look at this passage with me in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Look at this. This is Peter writing, it's a second letter. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, is the word in, in the Greek language that Peter actually uses there. It's translated hell, because that's, that's what it means. It's, it's a place of hell. Putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And he goes on and he, he makes a connection there to Noah, and that'll be important in a little bit. But this word Tartarus is a very Greek term. Peter picked up on this word, and, and it was the place in Greek mythology where after the Olympian gods had triumphed over the Titans, it's where they put them. Now, I don't think Peter believes that that happened. Peter's not endorsing Greek mythology. He's using a word that they would have understood, a concept that they would have understood, and saying, okay, this is where God put some, not all apparently, because clearly Jesus cast out demons, so they didn't all go there, but some of them went to this place called Tartarus. Okay, this place was described in Greek mythology as, as being a, a dank, gloomy pit. Oftentimes, these places are considered to be underground or in the underworld. It's, it's uh, surrounded by a wall of bronze, and beyond that, a threefold layer of night. In Greek mythology, Hades is the main realm of the dead. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but this Tartarus place is a special place. It's locked away. Humans don't go there, <laughs> And I think Peter, he didn't believe that stuff, but he's using that word to describe a very specific place. He uses this concept to describe the place where God is holding some fallen angels that became demons. It's the only time this word ever appears in the Bible, is this one place, and its use here, I think, indicates that the human souls are not present. People don't go here. Now, what I want to do is show you a passage from 1 Peter that's really significant. Look at this. He's talking about where Jesus went between his death and resurrection. Look at this. He, meaning Jesus was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. 
Now, those are the normal words for spirit and prison, nothing special there. But who waited patiently long ago while God, or who disobeyed long ago while God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, remember the passage I told you from 2 Peter that goes on to reference Noah? I think this is a reference here to Tartarus because it was, in Greek mythology, a prison. It's, it's a hell that functions as a place of uh, eternal imprisonment. Jesus preached to fallen angels between his death and resurrection, not lost, dead humans. And I think it went like this. I don't know this, but I think this is how it went. I think Jesus stormed through the gates of Tartarus, and they're all like, huh? And he's like, hey, we won. Bye. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, it was just, it was over. And they're locked away. I don't know. It's maybe some pocket dimension. I don't know. But it, God, that's one, that's one place when we're talking about the afterworld. You're never going to go there. No, one's, no human being will ever go to that place. The second place that the Bible talks about is Hades. The Hebrew word is Sheol or the grave. It often gets translated the grave. It, it's usually a poetic image just for death. Before Jesus came, this is a place where a person's soul who does not have a covenant relationship with God goes when they pass from this life. Hades is also described as a place that's dark and gloomy and quiet. Hades is the Greek word. Sheol is the Hebrew word. This, is, this place is described in terms that would remind us of a holding cell where criminals are placed until they're sentenced. After Jesus came, Hades then gets intensified. It, it becomes even stronger into a place of initial judgment. This is hell as it exists now. So you've got Hades or Sheol, the grave, which is kind of a loose term in the Old Testament. Jesus comes, and then you get Hades, as it is, hell as it is now, as it exists now. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The Bible tells us that um, after Jesus returns, all of humanity will be resurrected for judgment, and at that point, Hades will be emptied out in preparation for the final judgment of God, okay? Uh, when, when all humanity appears before the great white throne. So you see here on the map, you've got uh, the grave, then Jesus comes, and after that, it, it, hell becomes kind of, it's hell as it is now, as it exists now, where again, when, when your body and soul separate, if you've got a covenant relationship with God, you don't go here. <laughs> this is where people outside of a, a covenant relationship with God go, and then at the resurrection, then here's what's going to happen. Look with me at Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. This is John speaking. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, white here being an image of purity. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. You realize God is making a record of everything you say, do, and think, and it's being written down in heaven. That, that's the idea here. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they'd done. Now look at this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life 
was thrown into the lake of fire. (laughs) Did you hear that? After the final judgment, even death itself will die. It will be thrown into hell. Um, the, the, The word that was often used is Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a place out of the valley outside Jerusalem. It was basically the trash dump. Um, it, it's, it was really strange. Uh, <laughs> when we were in Israel last summer, they have turned this place into a city park. This actual location, it, it was a valley, and it was their trash dump. And um, It's kind of beautiful now, but it, it wasn't in Jesus' time. Uh, it, it was a valley, so it naturally collected water, and it was a lot of, there would be some people would dump their sewage there. Uh, so it was damp. But then they would also go out and burn things there, so it was on fire. So if you can imagine what that would be like, it stinks, it's damp, and it's on fire, and this just, the fire just never goes out. People just keep feeding it their trash. The fire just burns and burns and burns. It stinks. It was a, it was a bad place. And that's the image that Jesus picks up on to describe after the great judgment of God where people will go. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you, you maybe and looked at it already today, you might have seen this. Y'all, if, if you can preach on heaven without a smile or hell without a tear, something's wrong. And my heart breaks because this is a real place, or it will be. And just like God is preparing a place for us, he is also preparing this place. <laughs> and people we know may end up here unless we do our job. This is real. Jesus talked about it. He's the only one who's ever died and come back. So I'm going to go and assume he's right on this issue. This is serious stuff. This place is hell as it will be. (laughs) This is the final place of punishment for those who've never experienced the love and forgiveness of God. This is where the eternal bodies of those who did not ever have a covenant relationship with God will go. This is the lake of fire spoken of in Revelation. In describing this place, Jesus called it a place of outer darkness, total and ultimate separation from God. There was a story that in the 19th century, some preacher was, was preaching about hell. Sermons on hell were more common back then. And he said that it would be a place of great mourning, of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And a woman in the church who's in the balcony stood up and said, Sir, I have no teeth. And he said, Madam, teeth will be provided. You see, when we are resurrected, we will be resurrected into a body that does not die if you're in heaven and if you're not you'll be resurrected into a body that dies forever every day for eternity there's a little wiggle room there some people believe in a doctrine called annihilationism that the fire of hell does not torment the fire of hell consumes and that once you've paid the penalty for your sins you just blink out of existence there's the, the, the door is cracked open in scripture just Barely enough to go, yeah, maybe. (laughs) The dominant image throughout Scripture is that it goes on and on forever. It's eternal. 
Now, some of you right now are really struggling with this. You're like, man, I, I, I wish I wouldn't have come to church today. Why didn't I sleep in and watch Netflix? Oh, my goodness. Or maybe you're sitting there going, I, but yeah, but what about, but what about, let's deal with the whatabouts. There's the elephant in the room. Let's talk about it. I'm gonna, so I'm going to interrupt our effort here to, in our little map to talk about the whatabouts. One of you asked the question, what about cremation? Is that okay? Is that okay for Christians to do that? Here would be how I'd answer that. Did God ever make a man out of dust? <laughs> yes. So why couldn't he do it again? Resurrection is a miracle, people. It's not like it's not a magic trick. It's not like God goes, and here's a person. You know, it just it doesn't work like that. You know, did you notice in Revelation it says that the sea gave up the dead that were in it? So people who were buried at sea will be resurrected. Do you think their bodies haven't been scattered all over the ocean floor? (laughs) So I, if you want to be cremated, I think that's fine. I think Christians who are afraid of cremation may very well have a, a, a deficient view of the power of God. Some will say, well, what about Jewish people now? You know, I mean, you talked about uh, before Jesus came, what about now? This is tough. The Bible says that God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. And so the issue really isn't, well, what is God going to do with this person? What is God going to do with this person? Or what is God going to do with this person? The issue is this, how do you have a covenant relationship with God? See, God only has one covenant at a time. By his own words, Jesus came to establish a new covenant of grace through faith with the family of Abraham, the Jewish people. To Jewish people at the Last Supper, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus was very aware he was beginning a new covenant that began with the Jewish people. Now this covenant also, praise God, because this includes me, is, includes the Gentiles. I don't know about your family before Jesus came, but my people were dancing around trees in Scotland and worshiping them. So I'm very thankful that this new covenant includes me. But God only has one covenant at a time. And he came to establish a new covenant with the Jewish people. Jesus did. And I pray every day that they (laughs) accept that new covenant because that is the only way to be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is exclusive. Now, it's inclusive in that everybody gets to come, but it's an exclusive claim. So some will go, well, what about people who died before Jesus came? Good question. Here's how I'd answer that. Israel was placed at the center of the ancient world so that their monotheism could influence the entire world. I want to show you something. This is a modern reconstruction of an ancient map. It's been redrawn, but this is, was an ancient map of a man named Erostratathes, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, a, a Greek dude. This is roughly 550 B.C. Um, th- this is a, just shortly after Israel was taken off into exile in Babylon. He created this map of, of the ancient world as they knew it. Tell me, friends, what's dead center? This is where you talk. Israel. Dead smack in the middle of that map is Israel. God put the promised land in the dead center of the ancient world so that the monotheism of Israel could influence the entire world. Now, there's no evangelistic mandate in ancient Judaism, okay? But where God put them 
was so that their, their influence could spread across the whole world. Let me also show you this. Here's a little animation, a little video. We'll dim the lights, and I want to show you these are the ancient trade routes. So the, the pink lines are, are trade routes in the ancient world. Let's run that again. Do you see how almost all of them connect? Either they run through or connect with Israel. Do you see this? Not only did God put Israel in the center of the ancient world, but he ran major trade routes through that country and connected them to places all over the world. Europe, Africa, Asia. They were all connected to this place. Not only that, but written right into the law of Moses. In Exodus 12, 48 and 49, are instructions on how Gentiles can celebrate the Passover. How they can participate in the worship of, of, of Israel's God. So I would say this. God did everything he could do. In, he was preparing this place. He was preparing Israel. He did everything he could do as he's preparing Israel to receive their Messiah to make sure that their faith could be known around the ancient world. So when you ask the question, what about people who died before Jesus came? I would say God gave them every opportunity to hear about it. Well, what about those who've never heard the gospel now? Well, they will be judged against the standard of their own conscience. God applies a universal standard. If you never had a chance to hear the gospel, then the standard God will judge you by is your own conscience. Look at this with me. This is from Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Paul's great, this great treatise on the law in Romans. Look at what he says. He says, indeed, it's kind of a parenthetical statement here, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart. Look at this. Look, look, look. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. See, here's what's going to happen. On judgment day... God will ask people, do you know my son? No. Did you ever hear of the law of Moses? And if they say yes, he'll say, did you follow it? And they'll say no. And if they say no, he'll say, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever done anything wrong? And anyone with sufficient mental faculties, how will they answer that question? Talk to me. Yes. Anyone in their right mind who, who is of, of sufficient mental faculty will say, oh, I, I have done wrong. How do they know that? It's built in. It's hardwired. It, 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 God designed it into us. That's, the Paul's, that's Paul's argument in Romans 1 and 2. It, it's hardwired right in. So you need to understand, God is not going to send anyone to hell. They will send themselves. They will admit, they will acknowledge, yeah, I've done wrong. And they'll see themselves in all their moral corruption in contrast to God's holy, righteous nature shining in front of them. And he won't have to send them, they'll send themselves. They'll see what's right in that moment. I know this is hard. This is heavy. And it runs counter to what our culture is telling us where, oh yeah, everybody, all dogs go to heaven. You know, everybody gets in. 
This is why God is totally justified in his verdict of hell for someone who never hears the gospel. He'll simply judge them based on their own conscience. Do you ever do anything wrong? Uh-huh. Sorry. And I believe a tear will roll down his eye and he'll say, um, you need to go to the left. The tragedy here is that God has given humans natural revelation in creation. In Romans, that's Romans 1. And natural law in our inherent moral code, that's Romans 2, in order for us to seek him. We have a personal responsibility to seek out the truth of God. And if we don't, God will hold us accountable. Now you know what's at stake when Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's why evangelism matters. That's why missions matter. That's why you building a relationship with your neighbor matters, because something is on the line here. So what happens when somebody accepts Jesus? Now we get to talk about the good news. Let's talk about what happens, part two. In the Old Testament, the grave, or Sheol, is set against a very vague notion of the afterlife. It's described as, sometimes as, the heavens or Abraham's side um, it, it, though most often it's simply called the grave. And I think it's a poetic reference more than anything else to just say they died. They went down to the grave, meaning that we buried them. <laughs> They're dead. Um, according to Jesus in Luke 16 in the Old Testament, if you're in a covenant relationship with God, then your soul goes to be with Abraham. And there's really not much else said about that. It's, kind of, it's very vague, and that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees argued over the afterlife. Because it really, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, there's just not that much about it. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, this place, whatever it is, where the faithful go, is intensified or glorified into the place that Jesus called paradise when he spoke to the thief on the cross. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus says to the thief crucified near him, Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the place that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. It's this, it's this wonderful place. It's kind of heaven as it is now. It's not the final uh, abode of the righteous. There, the, something better yet is coming. When you die now, and you, if you're in a covenant relationship with Jesus, and you go to be with him in paradise, it's going to get even better than you can imagine. See, this is the, the word that Jesus used here is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about the Garden of Eden. So we get the picture that this is a place of beauty and life and, and joy and, and, and uh, just verdant, uh, wonderful you know, trees and flowers and fields. and It'll be a great place, but your body won't be there. It'll just be your soul. See, Jesus' death and resurrection opened the way for our souls to enter the very presence of God in, in paradise, but that's not the end of the story. Th turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The souls of departed believers will uh, wait in paradise with Jesus until his return. The church in Thessalonia was asking a lot of questions about this. They may have had some of the same questions you did. I don't know if Paul ever did a sermon series called You Ask For It, but... Um, 
they were asking some of these questions. And so when Paul wrote them a letter, uh, he wanted to give them instruction about this as he had been uh, instructed by Jesus. Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, so he's, this is authoritative here, this is from Jesus, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, an image for death here. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. Think about this. The same voice that commanded Lazarus to come out of the grave is going to command you to come out of the grave one day too. Casey, come out. Bob, come out. Mary, come out. With a loud voice, he'll call you out of, out of the grave and out of death. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with our Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I got to tell you a story. Um, my Old Testament history professor was a man named Wilbur Fields. Grew up on a farm in Kansas. Godly man, never did any education beyond his bachelor's degree, didn't need it. He just, he was a brilliant man, brilliant scholar, Old Testament guy, had been on several digs in the Holy Land, archaeological digs, and, and pretty sure he found the city of Ai, but was just never able to publish his findings. So uh, a lot of archaeology goes that way. Very holy man, very, felt his own sin very deeply. And so the students in the dorms, we would argue about who was holier, <laughs> you know, Brother Fields or Brother Wilson. You know, we'd have this argument. Um, and, and one day, uh, it just so happened that, um, and I didn't see this, but uh, friends of mine did. Uh, Brother Fields would always go eat breakfast with the students in the cafeteria early in the morning. He, he, was, all, he was there, all, he was on campus by, by four at the latest, 4 a.m. And uh, so he'd, he'd been there for a couple hours. He'd go eat breakfast with the students. And he was walking up the hill one day, and there was a, a music major who had a master class early that morning. He was a trumpet player. And so he'd gotten up early and just on his way to class just for fun, kind of blew a fanfare early in the morning on his trumpet. <laughs> Friends who saw this said that Brother Fields, at 68 years old, hit his knees on concrete steps walking up the hill at Ozark Christian College because he was ready. He was listening for that trumpet. Looked up expectantly. Okay, here we go. This is what we've been waiting for. I heard a story about a little girl. She was asking her mom about the resurrection. And she said, Mom, when is Jesus going to come back? And she said, Honey, we don't know. Could it be any time? Oh, it could be any time. Like, like today? Like today. Like right now? Like right now. Mommy, will you comb my hair? <laughs> This text tells us that Jesus is going to bring us up out of the grave. I think that's what the word bring there means. He's going to bring us up out of the grave. And when we die, our body and soul will be reunited. Or at the resurrection, rather, our body and soul will be reunited. Our souls will go to be with Jesus when we die in paradise. 
The Bible doesn't say exactly what that's like. It'll be good. You won't, trust me, you want to go. The alternative is not good. And then when Jesus comes again, our bodies will be resurrected to a glorified state. Turn with me to Revelation 21. I probably should have just had you stick your finger there. We'll go back to Revelation 21. We'll read the first part of this passage. When Jesus comes again, our bodies will be resurrected to this perfected state. They'll be reunited with our souls. We'll have a new eternal home. (laughs) And there's a better, greater place in store for us. It's heaven as it will be. Look at this. Look at what John writes in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. You realize we get to live on a brand new planet. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You realize heaven and earth are coming together forever here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I am, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, literally first and last, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Just as Hades is intensified into hell, after the second coming and final judgment, paradise is intensified into heaven. Paradise becomes heaven. When our bodies and souls reunite and we live forever in glory with God the Father in His presence, and because of our perfected state and our sin being washed away, we get to see the face of God. And we will not die, but we will live forever. heaven as it will be, the heaven of Revelation 21, we do not get to experience until Jesus comes again. And may that be soon. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. But some will not. That's the promise that awaits you if you're in a covenant relationship with God. (laughs) But that's not the most important question. See, the most important question is this. It's not knowing what happens. It's knowing the one who decides. Do you know the one who decides what happens? Do you know him who is going to make that decision? That's the most important question. Do you know Jesus? Because I know for a fact that God does not want anyone to experience the bottom half of that map. Jesus wants everyone to have eternal life. In John chapter 6, verse 40, he said, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You have a choice. Your friends and family have a choice. Your neighbor has a choice to know Jesus and have eternal life. Have you made that choice? Do you know the one who will decide where you spend eternity? See, the truth is, if you choose to be judged based on your covenant relationship with Jesus, you will be resurrected to eternal life. But if you choose to be judged based on your own sense of right or wrong, 
or trying to adhere to a covenant that's no longer in effect because Jesus fulfilled it, then you'll be resurrected to eternal death. You need to understand God does not want that for you. He does not want that for anyone. He wants your experience to be that of salvation and grace and eternal life. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received that? Do you know the one who determines where you spend eternity? That's the ultimate answer to the so what question. You see, this understanding gives urgency to our evangelism. You need to tell everyone you know about Jesus. This understanding of of what happens when we die changes the way that we interact with people here. Do you understand on Sunday morning when you turn around and you shake hands with someone, you are shaking hands with an eternal being. When you go up and you comfort someone who, who like the, 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 the parents in our community, just lost their children, you are wrapping your hand around an eternal being, someone who will live, a soul who will live forever one way or another, or maybe die forever. This changes our fellowship, friends. This changes our, the way we do ministry, that what we do in this life echoes in eternity, that what we do here has ramifications going on and on forever. This gives strength to our faith. When life is falling apart, we have this understanding that one day, one day we will be resurrected into a glorified body that will live on forever and ever in glory and joy. And so when life is just beating you down, I come back to the question, do you know the one who determines where you go when you die? Did you hear me today? Knowing what will happen when you die is important. But knowing the one who decides that is essential. Do you know him? How are you going to respond to this today? Maybe this morning you're going to want to spend some time in prayer. Maybe you know someone, you've got a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker that doesn't know Jesus. And you really want to spend some significant time in prayer for them today. We're going to have folks down here who are ready to pray for you in just a second when we stand and sing together. Maybe you're going to want to come down and like William Carey, the great missionary to India, just beg God for their souls. That's okay. He wants you to pray that prayer. Maybe you're here today and you're going, man, I got to be better about sharing my faith. I'm not exactly sure how to do that though. Under the yellow awning is our next step room. We'll have folks in there that'll be happy to talk with you and just kind of help you filter your experience and talk through what does that look like? How, how, I, I want to do it. I've never, I've never done it before. Where do I start? You, you go there and, and have that conversation with them. Maybe you're here today and you, you, you know that you've never entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus. You've never made that decision to say, yeah, I want to follow him. I want his blood shed on the cross to count for me. I want to confess Christ as Lord and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and live that new life. You have an opportunity to receive that today. As we stand and sing together, please come to the front and you can enter into a covenant relationship with God and be assured of eternal life this morning. Let's stand together as we sing.